possible to live so close to God that you're mouth to mouth with him? I find that fascinating because Jews believe that, that every time you breathe, you say the name of God. The four Hebrew consonants for the name of God is yod Hey, vod Hey, yod Hey, vod Hey. So Jews believe that every time you breathe, you're saying yod so Jews believe that you came alive when God breathed the ruhach, the breath of God into you. That's when you came alive. So you actually die, not when your heart stops, but when you stop saying his name. And so when an atheist stands up and says, there is no God, he's actually saying, yod, hey, Vold, hey, with the very breath of God that he is denying. So he is the air that we breathe. And so when you look at this word pneumaticus, it is a fascinating, profound word that Paul used. And you can begin to see why he said, be jealous for this thing, desire this thing. And so if you were to take your car to a garage and they put it on racks and they would lift it up, and they take the tires off because they're going to rotate them. They'll use what's called a pneumatic wrench. Service garage has those. Well, that is a special wrench that is designed to function with compressed air. Air blows through that thing. It's not electric. It's not battery. It's compressed air that blows through that wrench. That, that wrench is useless till the air blows through it. And the moment that blows through it, it's actually more powerful than any other kind of a wrench. And it can just take lug nuts off in a second because of the air that blows through that thing. That's a pneumatic wrench. That's a wrench that works by air. When Paul uses this word, he's talking about men and women just like you who are literally who have the capacity to function beyond their capabilities because the wind of the Holy Spirit blows through them. And you think about it, if you think about it, that we are rendered incapable of doing anything for God until the wind of the Holy Spirit blows through us. And the moment the Holy Spirit blows through us, anything's possible. You take the most simple, weak vessel, someone who doesn't have a lot of knowledge, education, someone that maybe is not schooled, someone that doesn't have articulation, so, someone, and you think, well, what could they do for the kingdom? Well, I'm going to tell you something. When the Holy Spirit starts to blow through someone like that, they can pull off the impossible. And so our qualification certainly is not our pedigree, and it's not our education. The, quali the qualification for every one of us in this room is the Holy Spirit blowing through us. And the moment the Holy Spirit blows through us, anything's possible. And that, my friends, is a life that I desire. Does that make sense? So see, it's not even... It's not even safe. It's not even biblical to say, well, I just want God. You know, I don't want all this other stuff. That's superfluous. I've heard people say that. You guys don't, but I've been in circles, and my heart grieves. I know what people are saying. I understand their heart. Their heart is, is I don't have to have all of this superfluous stuff to, to, to have Jesus. I, he died for me. He rose from the dead. He cleansed I have everything I have in Jesus. I get that. I acknowledge that. I agree with that. I don't have to have a miracle. 
I'm not contingent on miracles to have to serve Jesus. He's done enough for me 2,000 years ago when he made a declaration. It is finished. It is done. I don't have to have a miracle to rely on him. He's already done enough for me. But the fact is, because I have him in my life and I believe in the operations of the Holy Spirit, I desire a life that is moment by moment by moment by moment influenced by the breath and the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through me to pull off things through me that I cannot do on my own capacity. I have to have the Holy Spirit blowing through me. One expositor says this is a word that means to be completely influenced by nothing else but the operation of the Holy Spirit. Man, I desire that. I desire our churches to be just like this. I desire Christians and believers to be people who are completely influenced by the operations of the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing that breaks my heart about this word is there's a word that Paul uses in this very book that is the polar opposite of that word right there. And and I want you to look in in chapter 3 of Corinthians and, and, and look what he says. And now, understand, Paul is not... You, if you kind of get his heart on this thing, after what I just described to you, who wouldn't desire a life like that? What believer would not desire a life that is influenced by the, by the breath, the wind of the Holy Spirit? What believer would ever say, no, I don't want a Holy Spirit blowing through me like that. I don't want that. So, of course we would all want that. And so, with that in mind, you can hear Paul's heart now coming out in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, And I, brethren, listen, I, brethren, you understand he's talking to a church. Brethren, those who are literally, the Adelphos, those who are in the faith, and I, brethren, listen to me, could not speak to you as, the preposition is someone who is like being influenced by the Holy Spirit. I, same word, Demodocus. I couldn't speak to someone who is being influenced by the Holy Spirit. He's coming to this church. He's writing this letter, and he says, I couldn't speak to you as someone who is being influenced by the Holy Spirit, but as someone who is being influenced, look at this, by the flesh. And that, that men of flesh is one simple word, and it's, it's sarkinos. If you're taking notes, it would be S-A-R-K-I-N-O-S, sarkinos. And sarkinos is the polar opposite of pneumaticus. Whereas pneumaticus means someone who is completely contingent upon and influenced by the Holy Spirit, pneumaticus is a word that means someone who is completely influenced by the works of flesh. But he's talking to believers. And so I want to say it is quite possible for believers to be influenced by the Holy Spirit, but it's quite possible for a period of time for believers to be influenced by the flesh. And as I was preparing this, you understand, um, I, I always want to make this contextual. Any church that I, that I go to, and, and when, when I was teaching this, the Lord said, I, I need you just to talk about this for just a moment because this is this fusion between purity and power. And, and if we don't understand this, long after I'm gone, I'm telling you the insidious works of the enemy, if flesh isn't dealt with, will cripple 
the ongoing move of what God wants to do in this body of believers. I would never want it to be said of this church. Wouldn't want God to say, man, I want River House, I wanted to do some great things for you. But there was too much flesh in the way to prevent the Holy Spirit from operating through you. So I think there's a quote on the side screen, is there not? I want you, I want, now listen to this. This is, a, this is a man who, at one, we were talking about this yesterday, who I think is one of the most brilliant theologians I've ever read. And this is his definition of flesh. Now watch this. Characteristics of, of, of flesh. He says, he says, there is an enlarged sense of one's own importance. A desire to have, um, to have self, self-honored. To have self-honored. Listen to this. A hypersensitiveness to injuries. A tendency to magnify the faults of others. An inordinate, tenacious love for one's own will, ideas, plans that causes them to be deeply depressed or violently rebellious or sullenly stubborn when they are repudiated. Hold that for just a moment. Back up for a moment. You think about that. That's the condition of Corinth right there. I, brethren, wanted to talk to you about the pneumaticus. I wanted to talk to you about men and women who could flow in the supernatural function of the Holy Spirit under the power and the leading, but I couldn't because you were still influenced by flesh. And if you're influenced by flesh, those are the kinds of tendencies that are going to begin to manifest. And you understand you can paint this up with religious rhetoric and put a mask on, but flesh always leaks out. You can't disguise flesh. Paul made that very clear in Galatians 5 when he said, the works of the flesh are evident. Phanerosis, they will manifest. Flesh always sticks its head up and will be seen. Okay, go to the next screen. He goes on. This carnal condition of flesh gives rise to a tormenting fear of man. I cannot begin to tell you how much fear, and Dan mentioned this last night, fear of man keeps us looking horizontal and not vertically. And we live for the applause of men and not the audience of one. Do you see how that would jack up flowing in the spirit if we're looking for the approval of other people? I Listen, I might... I love when someone whacks me on the back and says, good job. Come on. That just feels good. But in the final analysis, I only need Papa to say to me, well done. That's all I really need. And if there's an attraction for that, if there's the attraction for the applause, and if I have to somehow migrate toward the opinions of people, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to be sorely in trouble. I must hear the approval of my father and live for that alone. And if you live for the compliments of people, you'll die by their criticism. So it gives a tormenting fear of man, a covetousness, an unholy anger. Look at this moodiness. Oswald Chambers says moodiness is the epitome of a carnal nature. Moodiness. Just up, down, up, down. What are we? Worldly ambition, lukewarmness, revengeful feelings, impulses to retaliate, instability, and bitterness of spirit. Last one. 
All these and many more too numerous to mention belong to the dark list of the manifestations of this carnal sin of the unsanctified. They are all expressions of wounded pride and injured self-love. They are all evil. They cause strife and division in the church, thus dishonoring and retarding the work of God. Is that not sobering? And Paul wanted to talk to these people about flowing in the Spirit. Now, you understand, I'm not jumping on anybody's case here. I'm not. I'm just simply saying, well, here, let me just, I don't want to simply say, let me just tell you what the Word says. Just look real quick. Galatians. Just go to Galatians, then we'll come back to Corinthians. Galatians chapter 5. Look at verse 24. Just verse 24. Galatians 5 verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus. Are you ready? Have crucified the flesh. They've not stuffed it down. They don't tolerate it because what you tolerate will dominate. They've crucified it. And so there has to be a moment, believers, because remember, Paul's talking to believers. There has to be a moment, believers, when we say, I want my flesh crucified. And then I will tell you, that is an initiation into a lifestyle of constantly saying, I want my flesh crucified. Because there are deeper levels of death as we mature in Christ. I want my flesh crucified with its passions and its desires. And I tell you, I today want my flesh crucified with its passions and desires because it's the only way that I am going to be subject to the influence of the Holy Spirit on a moment-by-moment basis. I don't want flesh to retard the work of God in my life. Make sense? Okay. So, then go back to 1 Corinthians, if you would, and let's go to chapter 12. Um, I, I, don't, I don't have a clock. Well, just give me a perspective. Okay, very good. De- don't worry about it. We're, we're good. We're good. Um, so verse 1, chapter 12, verse 1. Now concerning this pneumaticus, this supernatural lifestyle, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware And um, please understand, if you just back up to chapter 10, I find this kind of fascinating too, because Paul uses the same phrase, I do not want you to be unaware. And, and, And I found this kind of fascinating because he is painting a picture in chapter 10 of Israel of having encounters with the supernatural. And if you look at chapter, well, let me just read this. They were all under the cloud. This is chapter 10, verse 1. They were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. Now look at this. They all ate the same spiritual bread. That's pneumaticus food. They all had supernatural food, right? You remember that? Where did the food come from? It just dropped out of the sky. It was supernatural food. They all drank from this. They had the supernatural drink. How'd they get that? Well, they just gushed out of a rock. And, and look at this. And it was a 
spiritual rock. It was a supernatural rock. And what was the rock? Well, lo and behold, it was Christ. So they literally had an encounter with the supernatural in the old covenant. The, the, the moments where the, the breath of God blew, picture this, the, the God dropped in and blew in on them. And yet, even they had those encounters, they still were laid low in the wilderness, meaning they were scattered. So when Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about the supernatural, you can have the supernatural all around you, but it requires you to steward that in such a way that you remain in it, ladies and gentlemen. It's no guarantee that you have a supernatural culture. You're going to have one next week. Does this make sense? I wouldn't want it to be said of us that we encountered the supernatural, yet we were laid low because we didn't stay in the flow of the Spirit. And that was the warning of Israel. And Paul, when he wrote the discourse in chapter 10, was trying to say, man, pay attention because these guys are an example. They encountered the supernatural presence of the Spirit, but they weren't able to steward that. And so he kind of rehearses that theme in chapter 12 when he says in verse 1, no, I don't want you to be ignorant, man. Okay. Now flip down to verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I love that verse. Now keep it in the context. Each one who is pursuing love, so keep it in the context, but to each one, and each one means every single one of you. Okay, every single one of you. So if you come up to me and you say, well, uh, God's never done that through me. Well, I, I would disagree. He probably has you didn't know it, or he probably will, and you're going to find out. But you, every single believer who has died to himself, pursuing God, who is pursuing love, every single one of you, check this out, is given. I love that word given. It's a present tense verb, so it tells me there's no quota. That means something is constantly bestowed upon you, constantly dispo, dis, uh, given to you, constantly released to you. There's no quota. It isn't like you reach just a certain amount and that's it, no more for you. No, every single one of you constantly is given, constantly is imparted, constantly is deposited into you. What is constantly given? Are you ready? The manifestation. That word manifestation could be defined as the expression, to put something on display, to let something be seen, to let something be exhibited. To each one of you is constantly given the expression of the Spirit. So every one of you become an instrument whereby the Holy Spirit blows through to exhibit something so that he may show off through you. Gordon Phoebe says, you become the instrument for the display of divine activity. You become the instrument for the display of divine activity. I remember reading a commentator, and he said, this is a picture of us being the canvas that God paints the picture on. 
You look at this picture over here or these pictures over here. There was nothing about these boards that said, I want to be painted this way. They were completely contingent upon the artist to craft the picture on them. You and I simply become the canvas devoted to God, and he paints a picture through us and expresses himself. That's all. And when that happens... When the manifestation of the Spirit begins to blow through us, it's always, look at verse 7, for the common good. For the common good. And that phrase, common good, comes from a compound word that means to come alongside someone and lift them up and enable them to walk more efficiently. It's a picture of someone who has maybe a bad knee. And so you take their one arm, you put their arm around you, and then together you're able to walk. That person is able to walk efficiently because they're leaning on the weight that you that you're giving them. So here's the idea. When the Holy Spirit manifests through each of us as instruments and displays himself, it is always for the edification. It is always to build up the body of Christ. It never divides the church. It never accentuates the manifestations of that person. It never says, "Look at me, look at me." It always is for the benefit of the church. It makes the church healthy. It makes the church strong. It builds the church up. And so when I go into circles and say, whoa, 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 we don't want that stuff, man. That'll divide the church. Are you serious? Really? If it is divisive, then I would tell you it's either not the operations of the Holy Spirit or it's being executed through people who have not been crucified. Incidentally, I, let, let me give you something real quick because I, before I get into these manifestations, I, I don't have time to do the whole chapter 12, but I want to give you four things if flesh is not crucified from the context of this chapter, and, and I'll just briefly mention And If you're taking notes, there's four things in this chapter if flesh is not crucified, which is why I believe Paul wrote what he did in this chapter. So, if flesh is not crucified, number one, you won't know your place in the body. And that would be verses 15 through 21. 15 through 21. Actually, he starts like a discourse on on verse 14. Chapter 12, verse 14, he starts a discourse. And and he goes all the way to the end of the chapter. But but he's, but he's he's giving exhortation to the Corinthians with the mindset of... If, if, if flesh is not dealt with, this is going to be a problem. And remember I said yesterday, this is not directional, this is correctional. And what do I mean by that? Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. These chapters are not given to us simply to say this is how you do it as much as you need to correct some things if it's going to be done appropriately. Did you see what I'm saying? If you don't see that, then, then you, you throw out, you, you can't extract these chapters from the context of the entire book, is what I'm saying. So it's correctional. So number one, you won't know your place in the body. And I find it very fascinating. For example, in verses 15 and 16, there's a problem with confidence. 
Because you have the foot and the ear saying, well, I'm not part of the big body because I'm not, I'm not like that over there. And I, have, I, I am amazed by how much confidence or lack thereof there is in the church. In other words, we don't know our identity. There's, there's insecurity. And can I just be real vulnerable with you? That has been my Achilles heel as I've been growing up, is my own insecurity. It is very crippling. And I'll tell you something. There's a nasty tendency, even in my own life, to want to compare with other people. And so in my mind, if, if flesh rises up within me, it'll rise up in the area of confidence. And I'll look at someone like a Craig Wrench. I'll look at someone like a, like a Corey Jones or a, even a Dan. And I'll say, well, you know. And I wouldn't say it out loud, but I think, man, what do I have to offer? Do you see how insidious that is? But people do that all the time. Preachers look at other preachers. They look at other churches. Well, I'm not like that. I don't have a building like this. In fact, my building actually would fit into this. But anyway, it's just, but it's just all of this comparison. And the enemy would love us to look at one another and not look at Jesus. And our eyes are to be fixed on him. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. So I can't look at the manifestations of other people. I can't, I can't look at a foot or a hand and say, well, I'm not like that. Of course, I have my own manifestations. I have my own lane. I have my own path. God has wired me to be me. And he doesn't need to be to be anybody else. He doesn't need you to be anybody else. And flesh has to be crucified or there's going to be a confidence problem. You won't know your place in the body. And I want to say every single one of you have a place in this body. Every one of you. You're vital to this thing. I've been pastoring for 30 years, and, and I still have people come to me, and they'll kind of sheepishly look at the ground and kick the ground, and they'll say, I just, I just don't know if I belong. I'm saying, are you serious? Of course you belong. You know what they're doing? They're comparing. They're doing this right here. So if flesh is not crucified, you won't know your place in the body. Incidentally, there's not only a problem with confidence, but in verse 21, there's a problem with arrogance. Because now you've got the eyes saying, well, I don't need you. And do you know there's actually people in the body of Christ who believe because of their particular manifestation that somehow they've arrived at a platform, that somehow, some way, they walk with a sense of esteem that's above others? Do you believe that there's some people that actually believe they're God's gift to the body of Christ? They wouldn't say that. It's a mindset. And it's arrogant. And you can tell the way they treat people. There's a sense of disdain and dishonor. So confidence and arrogance have to be replaced with knowing our identity in the body of Christ. If flesh is not crucified, you won't know your place. Number two, check this out. Number two, you won't, if flesh isn't crucified, you won't demonstrate honor for all members. Verses 20 through 26. And, and let me only mention this for a moment. In verse 26, it says, if one suffers, all suffers. That's not a threat. If you cry, I can cry with you. But here's the problem. If someone is honored, let all remembers rejoice with it. I have discovered in the body of Christ, we can cry with those who mourn. But if someone gets honored and we're not, that just rubs us raw. If flesh isn't crucified, it's very difficult to watch someone around you get esteemed, especially if you think maybe you deserve the esteem. Yeah. 
Does that make sense? Like I've seen people get blessed, just, just blessed financially. And I've had come people come to me and they'd say, I've been tithing for 65 years. I've never gotten a breakthrough like that. If you can't rejoice in others' breakthrough, then it won't position you to receive your own. Rejoice when people around you get honored. Rejoice, man, when someone is lifted up and we all applaud for them. I want to be the first to say yay. Right? Right? Come on. I mean that. Well, when am I going to get my own little applause? Don't worry about that. But if flesh isn't crucified, then you're not going to be able to demonstrate honor for all people. Here's a big one. Are you ready? Boy, you got to hear this one. Number three, if flesh isn't crucified, you won't function under authority. Verses 27 and 28. Paul says, and God appointed in the church first apostles, prophets, third teachers, and then the manifestations. Now, this is a very fascinating verse because what he is setting up here is a cover. The manifestations, such as the miracles and the, and the gifts of healing, people think, well, it's like a sequential. Like It's like Paul's trying to say this has to happen and this has to happen. He's not trying to set an order as much as establish an authority. And what he is saying is the manifestations must come under the operation of an apostolic leadership. So let me net it out this way. The manifestations in this church must be undercover. There must be an apostolic cover. Apostles, prophets, teachers in this case, but evangelists. The point is, there must be a covering that you guys operate under. And if this guy is the, the, the apostolic leader, and he has leaders around him, all of you in your manifestations must come under authority to your leadership. Right. I don't trust people who they themselves are not undercover. I don't trust people. I had someone say to me, man, I got all kinds of gifts of healing. He just flows through me. And I said, well, what, what, what outfit you belong to? What, what, who's your pastoral cover? No, I just kind of travel around. I understand that, but what church are you a part of? What, who's your cover? God, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I really don't. I'm skittish about that. And the order with which you guys flow in this house the longevity and the effectiveness of that will be enhanced as you stay undercover. Does that make sense? If you are not sure, ask your cover. Do not be divisive. And if flesh isn't crucified, you'll do your own thing. You'll get pompous with your own manifestations. See what I'm saying? And then number four, if flesh isn't crucified... You will not celebrate diversity within the body, verses 29 and 30. And that's when, when Paul says, are all this, or all this, or all this, or all this. He mentions apostles and prophets and teachers and miracle workers and healings and tongues and all that. What he is trying to say is, is there's diversity in this body, and we need to celebrate that. But if, if, if flesh hasn't been crucified, there'll be no celebration. Okay. I, I meant to share that with you, and I didn't mean to go that long on that. But does that make sense? You guys get the idea that flesh has to be crucified. <laughs> okay, we got it, Rob. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> okay. Uh, verse 7, then we finished up with that. But to each one is given the manifestation for the common good. 
Um, all right, let's walk through these manifestations. For to one is given um, a word of wisdom. Okay, word of wisdom. What is that? That's just, that is just a sudden blast. It's the Holy Spirit blows through you and enables you to have insight on a situation that you couldn't have possibly had before. It's, it's, it's the sudden ability to have a solution to a problem. You might be on the phone with someone or sitting at Starbucks, and they're sitting there saying, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And all of a sudden, God blasts you with such wisdom, you want to take notes on you. <laughs> right? Come on. We've all done that. That's a word of wisdom, guys. You think you just thought that up on your own? No one's that brilliant. <laughs> Come on, man. That's a word of wisdom. I really want that. I really want that. That, 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 that was the supreme desire of the Proverbs. It really was. So, number two. Um, word of knowledge. What is knowledge? Knowledge, gnosis, is, is to know something. So this is something given to you that you couldn't have known before. So you suddenly have knowledge about someone. You just, you just know. I walked through a hotel lobby one time and I heard the word diabetes. I turned, the only one in the, the hotel lobby was the guy behind the counter. I said, sir, do you have diabetes? He goes, as a matter of fact, I do. That was a word of knowledge. I couldn't have known that before. So I went over to him, I took his hand and I said, dude, let me just pray for you. Right now I'm gonna break this stuff off. Okay, why did God give that to me? Probably because he wanted the guy to be touched. It's a word of knowledge. You dropped it into my spirit. I was in a church in Augusta, Georgia. And during worship, I heard TMJ three times. TMJ, TMJ, TMJ. I got up. I turned around and I said, who here has TMJ? A lady said, well, that's me. She didn't tell anybody about this. She had this for 20 years. Her jaw was hurting, migraines, all this kind of stuff. I went up and I put my hands on her cheek like this. And I said, I just declare in Jesus' name, be gone. Listen, words of knowledge don't... They're not to impress anyone. They're to bring restoration and healing and people to salvation. The woman says, oh, my God. She goes, wow. You feel better? She goes, yeah. She came back the next night. She goes, I have no more pain. No more pain. That's a word of knowledge. On and on it goes. It's just God tells you things. I've, I've seen Dan do this. I've seen Dan look at people and just, just, just literally say, this is going on in your life. It's a word of knowledge. You guys have probably had that happen. It's a phenomenal gift in and out. Of the church. Um, faith. So there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there's this, there's this faith. So pistace, it's this sudden moment where God blows into you conviction for a situation that you know is going to happen. How do you know it's going to happen? Because you have faith for it. You're absolutely certain. You remember the four dudes in in um, uh, what was it, Luke 5, that tore a hole in the roof? They had faith. They were so certain that if they could get their buddy to Jesus, he'd be healed. So they tore a hole in a roof. They made a makeshift elevator, lowered the dude, and the guy gets touched. Why? Because they had faith. His sins were removed, and he, and, and he got healing because they had faith. Faith that blows on you will cause you to do the impossible and believe it. I like when people around me says, I know this is going to happen. We, we, had a, we, had a, we had a marriage that our worship pastor has been with us for 17 years, resigned five years ago because she was going to divorce her husband because the marriage was just awry. The guy had never been born again. She got, she got born again 
18 years ago in, in, in our house. And, and long story short, her husband was not a believer, and she, and she, she was fed up. So five years ago, she, she, resi- she just resigned because she was going to divorce her husband. Just done. And, and she said, I am so angry. I don't even want a miracle. Don't pray for a miracle. One of our intercessors said, well, I ain't buying that. Sorry. And, and prayed for a miracle and, and actually believed for it and came to the staff and said, it's done. We're all looking at her. What do you mean? She says, God gave me the faith. The marriage is going to be restored. And she'll be back in ministry and he'll be in ministry. God gave me faith for it. It's over. We don't even need to pray. Now we turn our to Thanksgiving. She said, we don't need to. I have faith for it. The water level just went up in the room. Right? And within six months, he was redeemed, born again. I led them through a renewal of their, their, their marriage vows again. And he now works the sound for our church. I want people like that around me that breathe life into us because God blows through them and speaks faith. Um, Healings, gifts of healing. So the fact that this is plural would tell you that there's different types of manifestations of healing. In fact, there are several different words in the New Testament for healing. And my workbook actually goes through the different types of healing, but, but, but this one here just means a cure. But, but by and large, this is just simply healing someone, laying hands on them, and they get healed. I've had the privilege of seeing people get healed. It's just amazing to me. It still amazes me when, when I lay hands on someone, and the power of God executes the Holy Spirit through me in such a way, poof, that they get healed. Sometimes suddenly, sometimes... Th- a week later when they're pouring milk over their Cheerios, it manifests. I don't give a rip. I just know that when the Holy Spirit blows through me, bam, there's a healing that takes place. It's awesome. I love that. I do. Um, and then, look, the affecting of miracles. And, and that is the inner geo of dunamis. That, that is the, that is the, that, the, in the context, this would be a sudden miracle, sometimes even maybe creative. I have seen five people get out of wheelchairs with Dan. Five people. One of them was at my district camp, a Nazarene district camp, with about seven, 800 people in the place. And Dan was giving a call for depression. And this lady came forward in a wheelchair, and he says, do you want to be healed of depression? She says, no, I want to walk. He says, but this is a depression altar call. She says, but I want to walk. He had a sudden vision of her walking. So he takes the little flaps that are... And by the way, she had a brain disease and hadn't walked for 10 years. Her little legs were emaciated. She sat in that little chair and she looked up at it. She goes, I want to walk. The DS is here. I'm standing here. Dan's there. And she says, he puts the little flaps up and she says, I'm scared. I remember he says, you're not as scared as I am. Do you remember that? I saw that lady get out of that chair. That little old lady began to just walk back and forth in front of about 700 people. You never get over that stuff. You never get over that stuff. When I was in Jamaica, I prayed over a boy named Romario 
who was declared NLP, non-light perceptive. Doug McCloy, a doctor in the Church of the Nazarene, an eye doctor, went with us on this trip. We did 13 services in nine days, and we prayed for Romario, and you put a flashlight in his face, and he couldn't see, but God gave us faith that he was going to see, and we prayed. We prayed for three hours. God, this is done. We're not going to leave. This is a done deal, and when we got done, God opened his eyes, and when we got back into... Uh, Atlanta. He was running around in the backyard chasing his dog. You never get over that stuff. I had a blue pen in my pocket, and he looked at the pen in my pocket, and he said, blue pen. I pulled it out, and I wrote on the Romario's pen, and I have it at home, and I look at it to remind me that God blows through us from time to time for creative miracles, to do supernatural things, man. It's phenomenal. Do you see why I don't want to shut this stuff down? Do you understand why I don't want flesh to cripple the operations of the Holy Spirit? I want this stuff to happen. I want this to be normal activity in the Spirit. Prophecy. And and, um, that's the next lesson after this one. And, And that is just propheteo. That is just speaking as God speaks to you. And I'll leave that one alone because we'll hit that one. Um... Distinguishing of spirits. Distinguishing of spirits. That's a compound word that means to judge accurately. To judge accurately. Um, th- this, is, this, is, this, need, this is needed in the body of Christ. The distinguishing or discernment. Um, because this has the capacity to drive through a, a, an area like this and begin to dis- discern and distinguish what principalities have the right to be here so you know how to war against them and tear them down to take this territory for God. And and, and sometimes you'll be driving through the city and the Holy Spirit will just fall on you and say, man, there's a strong sense of perversity here. There's a strong sense of witchcraft here. And you're able to discern that. And and then you're able to, to tear that down. Jay... Jealousy and Judy flow strongly and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit can operate through them real fast and they're able to discern. That's why they take people through deliverance because they can, they can discern what spirits are operating quickly in the people. And it helps you when you're praying and taking people through deliverance. The only thing I'll say about this is um, be careful about always seeing the demonic because I think we ought to see the angelic too. Yes. And distinguishing of the spirits can discern who. Wait a minute, Holy Spirit wants to take this thing left when we thought we were going to go right, and they can discern that. And, and so discernment-type manifestations are powerful, profound in the body of Christ. Um, next, kinds of tongues. And boy, has this ever been a hot potato. Um, it breaks my heart, it really does. I have a manuscript that I started writing called The Unspoken Truth that I'm writing... I'm writing a manuscript. I'm writing a book for the holiness movement on tongues. And it's not my idea. It's God's idea. It really is. But he did. He did put the brakes on, not because of fear, because of timing. There'll be a right time when this book needs to be submitted to the body of Christ. And they've done a lot of research on this one. The very thing given to bring unity to the church brought division to the church. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. In Genesis chapter 11, tongues divided the church. Acts chapter 2, they united the church. 2,000 years later, we're divided again. Largely over tongues. It shouldn't be divisive. But it is. So let me just 
tease this one for, out for you. Kinds is the word genos. We get the word generation from it. It can be translated variety. So right, along, right there tells you, okay, wait a minute, variety of tongues. So this is not one single manifestation. So evidently there must be a variety of tongues or else Paul wouldn't have used that. Well, there are. There's four that I have found. Okay? There's Acts chapter 2 verse 4. Acts chapter 2 verse 4 is they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. And in the context of that chapter, every honest scholar, honest, will tell you that they are speaking a variety of dialectus, dialects, that the nationalities there were hearing in their dialect. That is the supernatural blasting of the Holy Spirit through people at that moment to begin to speak in the languages that are represented. So you might be a missionary that goes to a country and you didn't have a chance to study the language and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit blows through you and you're able to speak that language. That, that would be that kind of a manifestation. My buddy Kevin Seymour was in Belize. The native language in Belize is catchy. And there was a healing line, and he went up to pray for the very first person. And the little short pastor, I like that short. The little short pastor came up to interpret for him, and all of a sudden he started praying catchy. And he got scared because he's an ordained elder, and he's thinking, oh my goodness, but I'm out of the country, no one would know. And he just kept praying, right? <laughs> and, and so the pastor looked at him, and the pastor said, you know catchy. And Kevin says, apparently I did for that moment. <laughs> And, and it was just, it was remarkable. And he told me about it. He journaled. He says, it's never happened since. Why would it? We wouldn't need to happen in, in, in the States. But it did there for a moment. Roland Baker, his best friend, Mel, uh, uh, not Meltari, um, Sapresa, speaks 17 languages, three of which he studied. And, and Rollins said that they'll land the Piper Cub in, a, in, a, you know, in the bush bush. And as soon as his feet hit the soil, he's enabled with the ability to communicate. You met him. Has the ability to communicate that language. Wow. That's cool, isn't it? Okay. Number two. I said yesterday, tongues of men, tongues of angels. Celestial languages. Celestial language. What, what are celestial languages? I, man, I don't know. You, you might know more than I do. I don't know. I've studied. I've read everything I can find on this. I don't know. Some scholars believe celestial languages are when angels come and give direction messages to people. That's a celestial language. That's tongues of angels. Others believe no. It's what Paul heard in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I think verses maybe three or four, it said he had this like out-of-a-body experience. Remember Paul? He went into a third realm. And remember what it says? He heard language that was unlawful to utter in this realm here. Some believe that he heard celestial languages that was so pure it couldn't be uttered in this realm. I don't know. Anyway, that's tongues of... Then there's um, chapter 14, and that's like 1414. If I pray in tongues... This is a prayer tongue. This is an unknown tongue that is known to God. In, in chapter 14, verse 3, um, or verse 2, he says, um, no one understands him. He's not speaking to men. He's speaking to God. Now listen, you're going to find this interesting, I think. The most fascinating book, probably the most helpful book that I read on this was by a Nazarene. 
His name's Dr. Richard Howard. In 1980, he wrote a book called Tongue Speaking. And he, he said, what was the purpose of Paul speaking in, a prayer, in, in tongues? What was the purpose of that? A Nazarene said, we are spirit, mind, and body. The deepest component of our life is the spirit. Now watch this. He said, sometimes God has to put things in us through our spirit that our minds would either dumb down or try to rationalize. Therefore, a prayer tongue is a direct communication whereby God speaks spirit to spirit, enabling us to grow first spirit and then mind and then body. That's what he said. And he teased that all out in a way that was phenomenal. Now, my only caveat that I would say, he ends the book by saying tongues and all the other manifestations are no longer viable options for us today. I was like, what? What? That's not even a position. Fear. Listen, why did he do that? Because it was safe. And I just want to say something, just, just to acknowledge my support for the Church of the Nazarene. That's not our doctrinal position. We are not secessionists or dispensationalists. H. Orton Wiley in 1945 wrote a three-volume systematic theology where in there he said, and it's in my workbook, I quoted him, all of the manifestations are available for the church at any age and did not die with the apostles. And that is the stated position of the Church of the Nazarene, at least on paper. And so my contention is, all we ought to do is just really try to find out what God is saying about the matter and not just make some blanket statement out of fear that this is no longer something we ought to be doing. I understand in the 80s, there was a lot of heat on this. And you know, in the 70s, if you understand the history, we kind of put the kibosh on this whole thing. But, but rightly so, because it was being used inappropriately. In the context, I want to tell you, if you have a prayer language, it's not primarily meant for everyone to hear. It's meant for the ears of God so that you can be edified in your spirit. That's why I don't agree with people saying, okay, come on, let's just everybody pray in tongues or let's give somebody a mic and let them pray in tongues. I'm skittish about that because that's not the purpose of it. It's to strengthen you in your own chamber room. It's okay during worship if you're in a private moment with God. I understand that. We have people in our own church that worship in the spirit, in, in tongues, sing in tongues. But it's primarily to edify your spirit. Does this make sense? So it has. I'll also say it's been inappropriately taught in that you don't have the Holy Spirit unless you manifest a prayer language. And that has hurt a lot of godly Christian people. That's why I do appreciate Randy Clark because Randy left the vineyard on this point right here because Randy said, I met too many spirit-filled people who didn't have a prayer language. And so... I just want to alleviate any pressure here. If you don't manifest through a prayer language, you're, you can still be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You really can be. Okay, Does that make sense? But the one that I rarely hear about is Mark 16, 17. This is the fourth one. And this is where Jesus said, there are four signs that follow those who essentially follow Jesus. 
And one of the signs is kainos glacé. Kainos is a word that means something that has been regenerated and made new. And there's a number of scholars that talk about the fact that that Jesus is not talking about an unknown tongue in that context. Jesus is talking about an anointed tongue. A tongue that when you've been in the chamber room with Jesus and you're following him, all of a sudden there's a boldness that fills your mouth and you speak with a power and an unction that you would not normally have. And you're able to look at people and communicate the gospel and speak with power and authority and people's hearts are literally ripped open because you spoke with boldness. Man, every time I preach, I want to preach with new tongue. I don't want to preach with an old tongue. I don't want some yawner and people go to sleep because there's no anointing. I want to preach with fire. I want people to be agitated and provoked so they have to repent or do something different with their life because I've spoken in the spirit. I've spoken with a new tongue. I think I want to preach with an old tongue. Are you serious? I think every time we speak the gospel, and that's in the context, Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel. One way we can preach the gospel is all of us are so intimate with Jesus, our mouths become flaming swords. Man, I've looked at a group of guys one time that God said, walk up to. There's these three dudes, and they were big. I'm small, they're big. I walked up to them, and I said, dudes, I want to tell you guys about Jesus. And I just begin, and boldness, begin to tell them about the power of Jesus and the anointing. And the, the, Jesus went to save their lives, and the anointing came on me. And there was fervor, there was power, there was strength. That was a new tongue. Peter. Remember Peter? Peter had an old tongue, right? Every time he opened his mouth, he changed feet. Gets baptized with the Holy Spirit. Preaches a 35-second sermon out of Joel and Psalms, right? And 3,000 people get born again. Acts 2.37 says their hearts were pierced. Literally cut open. That's a bold tongue. And finally, the last manifestation... So you understand, did I help demystify that, those four types, right? So I'm not, like, if you have a prayer language, I applaud that. A lot of us in this room do. Okay, if you don't, realize the manifestation of tongues may operate in another way. Don't feel bad about that. Finally is interpretation. Um, And interpretation is the ability to essentially interpret tongues, so if it is done, if someone were to perhaps grab the mic or someone prayed out loud in tongues, the ability to interpret would be able to hear that unknown language and give interpretation. But, but I, like, I like Gordon Fee and, and James Dunn's description on this. They say the ability to interpret tongues is the ability to interpret a variety of tongues in the context, meaning that these are people that can bring interpretation to various types of situations where God might be communicating and we're not certain of what he's saying. For example, a church suddenly is in the midst of a crisis and someone with interpretations comes forward and says, hold on, I know what God's doing, we can trust him. Or someone may have a dream and someone bring interpretation to that. Or someone's in the midst of a crisis and someone says, hold on, my friend, I see the hand of God in this. And they can bring interpretation to that. That's a valuable manifestation It really is. Okay, last thing I want to say, because we want to take a 15-minute break. 
Does every one of us have only one manifestation? Now, I know there's teachings on this. I, there's two schools of thought on this. I, here's the way I leaned, and um, it's just the way I leaned. Okay, I'm not going to get onto that. I believe that these are manifestations of the Spirit and therefore are not fixed gifts. I don't believe that the emphasis of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is what gift you have. I believe the emphasis is the Holy Spirit who has you. I lean a lot on Gordon Fee. His commentary on this is phenomenal. And Fee painted, he just went through verse by verse and really helped me on my thinking on this. And he, he described these different than Romans 12, which are more abilities of the Father and different from Ephesians 4, which are callings of Christ. He called these the manifestations of the Spirit and therefore were freely given by the Spirit and, and under the Spirit's decree. So it's not something you wield the way you want. Your only job is to stay contingent upon the Holy Spirit. Dead to yourself and alive in the Spirit. And so I have a garden hose. And it's 25 foot out to my garden. I have a big garden. 25 foot hose that comes out to the garden. And on the end of this nozzle, I have a, 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 it's a very expensive nozzle. I just like turn it. And when I turn it, I get a different manifestation of the water. And so, like, if I want to, like, broccoli, I can stand back 25 feet and I can just blast them, man, right? Then I got lettuce. And so lettuce is kind of tender, so I sprinkle those. Then I got stuff still under the soil, so I click, 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 and I soak those. So I have different plants in my garden, and so all I do is turn the clicker, click, 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 and I get a different manifestation of water. It's the same water, but I just go click, 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 and it manifests that water through a different way. I think our only job is stay connected to the source. I don't think we need to be looking at the manifestation. And listen, we're in his vineyard. We're his instruments. We stay connected to him, and he just goes click, 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 and the Holy Spirit flows through us the way he wants for the edification of this body. Amen.